This episode is brought to you by Mustard Seed Communities, providing a loving home to abandoned children with disabilities in Jamaica and around the world. Your support to Mustard Seed provides food, medicine, therapy, and lifelong loving care for the most vulnerable. Please make a donation today at mustardseed.com. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hey, Ashley. Looks How's like you're going? already uh, working on those drinks over there. I am. I just, <laughs> I, I was like, I started pouring, and then I realized that probably was going to interrupt. But uh, yeah, so. I guess we'll skip right away to what's on tap. It's uh, We're recording this on May 5th, and our uh, colleague, Vivian Cabrera, who you know from our bonus episodes, has requested that in honor of both her half-birthday and Cinco de Mayo that we have some tequila. <laughs> yes. um, so I've got some tequila just on the rocks. A little, All right. Keep it keep it classy in that way. <laughs> I, uh, got... I tried to make a, a margarita. I didn't really have the appropriate ingredients i'm trying to go to the grocery store just once a week so i have to use what's on hand uh so that was like the you know that like lemon juice that comes in the plastic oh no that's the worst (laughs) i know so it's not quite you know restaurant grade margarita but you know it's getting the job done (laughs) well i am sorry for you and your taste buds but uh anyway cheers all right cheers salud And who are we talking to this week, Zach? This week, we are talking with Chris White, who's the national correspondent for Crux. And really excited to have Chris on the show because his reporting has been um, really broad lately. And he's also broke a big story in the past couple of weeks about the U.S. Bishop's Conference call with President Donald Trump on Catholic education. Right. We covered this last week in Signs of the Times. Uh, Catholic bishops and education leaders had a conference call, the transcript of which, or maybe the audio, was leaked to Chris White, um, who broke the story. Um, And the meeting was supposed to be focused mostly on Catholic education and the support um, that bishops want for Catholic schools, which are in like dire financial straits because of the coronavirus pandemic. but it veered into uh, politics pretty quickly. Donald Trump used it to, you know, make his case for re-election in 2020, which caused a bit of an uproar. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly been this whole meta discussion about what the role of the bishop's engagement in politics is supposed to be like and what our role, the media is in covering that. So Chris has a smart reporter's perspective on this. And so really excited to have him on the show to talk about that and also some of the trends he sees in the wider U.S. church, especially as we come out of this pandemic. Right. So stick around for that. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sip through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So in the I didn't expect to see this story (laughs) department, uh, Franciscan friar and spiritual master Richard Rohr made an appearance on this week's episode of The Simpsons. And to be specific, it was just the book. His book, Universal Christ, made made the appearance. Right. So this was a two-part episode um, about a new, young, hip pastor who comes to Springfield and shakes up the local church uh, where that's, who is it? Reverend Lovejoy is the usual pastor. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> and so the, this episode was the first written by Pete Holmes, who is a great stand-up comedian um, 
who has a very uh, spiritual side to him. Uh, and he's the one who wrote the episode and also voices this new hip pastor. Yeah, and this is uh, makes some sense. We knew that Pete Holmes was engaged with Richard Rohr's work because of his uh, 2019 memoir, A Comedy Sex God. And uh, <laughs> Great title. <laughs> yes, Richard Rohr endorsed the book uh, and blurbed it on the back, saying that Pete Holmes, quote, might just be the new Thomas Merton. Well, if that's the case, I think it's time we get him on Jesuitical. Oh, yeah, totally. Both uh, either Richard Rohr or Pete Holmes, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know what? <laughs> Reverend together. Lovejoy. <laughs> Reverend Lovejoy would also be great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's our next story, Ashley? A new clinical study is trying to answer the question, can prayer help fight the coronavirus? Uh, this is being run by a doctor in Kansas City who wants to see if intercessory prayers can lead to better outcomes for patients uh, suffering from COVID-19 in the ICU. Yeah, so the study, which was launched this month, is it includes 1,000 patients, and half of them are going to be selected at random and receive, quote, a universal prayer, which is offered by Christians, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, and Buddhists. Um, a team of medical professionals is then going to assess how long patients remain on ventilators, how many suffer from organ failure, how quickly they're released, and how many die. Right. And Dr. Dadunje Alakaredi is the cardiologist behind this experiment. Um, and he says he's a person of faith, but he also believes in science. Um, and so despite some skepticism among his colleagues about the premise of this study, um, including his wife, who's also a, a physician, he thinks this is a worthwhile trial. Um, he says, you know, we're not putting anyone at risk and a miracle could happen. So there's a reason to hope. What do you think about this study, Zach? I, on the one hand, appreciate some sentiment too, because I think that prayer, as we, you know, have shown from our conversation with Father Michael Trail about uh, anointing patients, religion can obviously play a, an effective role in it, you know, at a minimum bringing comfort to patients, and that, you know, has to have some effectiveness down the line. On the other hand, I'm generally resistant to trying to measure or quantify prayer and its efficacy. I don't know. It just seems to be setting up wrong incentives or people to draw wrong conclusions from whatever the study ends up saying. Yeah. No, I, I'm kind of torn. You know, like if this was being conducted by someone who is, you know, more skeptical of religion in general as a way to kind of disprove prayer, you know, I think my instinct would be like, oh, well, that's stupid. Like you can't prove prayer. But since it's been, you know, it's kind of being done in good faith, I I like it as no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I like that someone is going out there in public um and like, you know, saying these things don't need to be seen as incompatible. Right. And I guess there's also a question of resources or I mean, there are a lot of things we mm. we could study right now. I don't know that this is at the top of the list, especially cuz I'm not sure what and maybe this is the wrong way to approach a scientific study anyway. I'm not sure what the sort of proposed solutions that could come out of this are. Uh, more prayer, which is always a good recommendation. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> but also tests and, you know, PPE would be, would be great. Yeah, true, true. Well, it's a four-month study, so we will make sure to follow up on the outcome when, when we know the results. I mean, can we imagine, though, if, it, if what happens when the headline is, oh, no, it did nothing. God's not listening. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. I, this is the sort of thing that I'm I'm worried about, um, especially like, I don't know, people need people need prayers right now and they don't necessarily need to be tied to medical outcomes because 
these are really tough situations and people's families are suffering. And I don't know. I hope this doesn't put people in any tougher of a situation would be my worry. That's a good point. What's our next story, Zach? So continuing our segment about how the coronavirus is affecting populations that we're maybe not paying attention to, um, the U.S. bishops actually released a statement this week um, urging state and national leaders to examine the way that African-American communities are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Right. And this is something we know is happening. Um, The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention um, have found that 33% of people who've been hospitalized with COVID-19 are African-American, but African-Americans only represent 13% of the total U.S. population. So this is this is hitting them harder than other groups in the United States. There's a bigger why question that needs to be asked here. Right. And it's we know that systemic racism in our housing markets, in our labor markets, in education, to just name a few, have been leveled against the African-American community since this country was started. And the effects of that are still seen today, and especially during a pandemic, they're sort of exacerbated. So the statement from the bishops said that, quote, our hearts are wounded for the many souls mourned as African-American communities across the nation are being disproportionately infected with and dying from the virus that causes COVID-19. We raise our voices to urge state and national leaders to examine the generational and systemic structural conditions that make the new coronavirus especially deadly to African-American communities. I guess this gets to this question of what can we do, right? And on the one hand, I thought this was really important for the church to pay attention to the data that's coming out, which says that this is disproportionately affecting the Black community. And they raise their voice about it. But there's sort of this like next step, or there's something a little bit more that I, I would have wanted to see, right? There, because we know there are people studying and examining the causes and the systemic racism that has caused this, right? That's not an unknown, unknown question. And so I think the church is in a position to be able to condemn that and identify that as systemic racism. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's important to continue to um, push on church leaders to be um, prophetic on this issue and really challenge um, our political leaders uh, to to take the practical steps in public policy to address those conditions. Um, but you know, so we gotta walk and chew gum at the same time. So as you do that, like, what can you as an individual do uh, in the meantime? Um, I think you know it's what we should all be doing. It's staying at home. It's keeping social distance because any premature reopening of the economy is going to disproportionately. Um, hurt the people that it already is disproportionately hurting, which is which we we know is African American communities is is the elderly. Um, so you know, while I think we can all acknowledge that the economic pain is real, um, and we should try to safely reopen our economy in ways that we can, um, it's it's important to realize that your your individual sis, uh, decisions. Uh, about how how you practice social distancing have a much wider effect on on vulnerable communities.
Joining us from New York City is Chris White. He's the national correspondent for Crux. Welcome to Jesuitical, Chris. Thanks, Ashley. Good to be with you guys. So good to have you. We are really excited to dig into a couple couple stories with you. Yes, including one that you broke a couple weeks ago um, about a number of bishops and Catholic leaders who were on a conference call with President Trump. Um, what was the before we dig into the reaction? What what was the purpose of that call? So this was a call that took place on April 25th, uh, and it was uh, ostensibly for the purpose of Catholic leaders to talk to the White House about the state of Catholic education and Catholic schools. They're facing an unprecedented crisis in the face of the pandemic with uh, declining enrollment, parents sort of scrambling to figure out how they're going to pay tuition, schools trying to figure out how they're, they're going to pay their bills. Uh, and so they wanted to sort of solicit more support from the president uh, for future relief packages for Catholic education. And what happened on, you, you said that was ostensibly the purpose, but what happened on the call? Yeah, so uh, very soon into the call, the president uh, went off script. Uh, and it was quite clear at the beginning of the call uh, that he did have a script that he was speaking from. Uh, where he talked about the value of Catholic education and how important it's been uh, for the church and the country. Uh, But he really pivoted quickly to issues relating to abortion and religious freedom. Uh, And he sort of uh, latched on to those issues uh, to make a big sort of pitch for his reelection in November, repeatedly coming back to the phrase, you know, the other side, if they win, this is the most important election uh, for Catholic issues uh, in American history. Uh, He then labeled himself the greatest president in the history of the Catholic Church. So uh, it was full of sort of superlatives. The bishops, of course, are used to working with any and every administration, Democrat or Republican, uh, in order to move forward policy priorities. Uh, But they're, you know, at least in their own documents, uh, uh, in terms of their stated uh, sort of approach to political engagement, they want to keep a, a real distance from endorsing or even getting anywhere close to that sort of territory. Uh, and so for the president to, one, make such a, a play for his reelection and for that not to be challenged, I think, put off a, a lot of Catholics. And then in particular, the comments from Cardinal Timothy Dolan, who was the first uh, bishop to speak that uh, was a prearranged sort of question uh, answer session with the with the president. Uh, he went out of his way to sort of heap praise on to uh, President Trump, saying, "We need you more than than ever. We're standing with you." Uh, so phrases like that uh, that just sort of folks latched onto and said, "This is entirely too sort of chummy of language for uh, a church leader to be using with a politician." Now, was this call supposed to be private? Well. <laughs> It's quite interesting. The call started off as, from my understanding at least, a, a working call between you know, select bishops, Catholic leaders, and admi- administration officials, but it swelled very quickly to over 600 attendees in the call. Uh, and you know, thanks to, <laughs> thanks to uh, some of those attendees, I was able to figure out uh, what had happened and get my uh, hands on an audio recording of, of the call. Uh, I I don't think they wanted this publicized in the way that it's been. At the same time, when you have a call that gets open to that many people, what do you expect? Right. No, that makes sense. I wonder if we could expand our perspective a little bit and just maybe how are Catholics so far assessing President Donald Trump's administration? 
Well, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a real divide. Uh, if you look at the exit polling from the 2016 election, you saw a real divide among Catholics voting for Trump and, and Clinton. Among, you know, Hispanic Catholics, which is, uh, you know, a growing number of our church, you know, the future of, of the church, really, Trump uh, does not rank fairly well with him. And that shouldn't be of any surprise, considering his positions on immigration and uh, his past cruelty with family separation policies and, and the like. Uh, now, with white Catholics, it's a it's a different story. And that's, uh, you know, part of his base. And I think in an election that's going to be so close, uh, as many are predicting uh, November 2020 to be, I think the president is making a real uh, outreach to Catholics, particularly white Catholics, because he wants their and he needs their vote. I'm wondering if you are anticipating more kerfuffles or instances where the church is kind of at least in a messy situation with the general election that's coming this fall and the different campaign attempts being made, the overtures being made to Catholic voters. Yeah, I think we're going to see, you know, it's, it's going to be a reoccurring theme. I mean, you know, you now have the president going on Fox and, or sorry, the, the Cardinal of New York going on Fox and friends, praising the president, uh, that could easily end up in a, in a commercial, uh, for Trump's campaign. Uh, on the other hand, you've got, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, who's a you know proud Catholic, and he's probably going to talk a lot about his faith on the campaign trail. Uh, and, you know, sort of traditional Catholic Democrats, I think, are going to be excited to hear him play that up. Uh, and then you're going to have other Catholics who, uh, of course, are strongly opposed to the vice, former Vice President's views on abortion in particular, that are going to want to make that, a, you know, a singular focus uh, of his uh, sort of Catholic faith. So, I think it's going to be an interesting six months. Uh, one of the events I'm most looking forward to, uh, if it happens, is the October Al Smith Dinner, uh, where you know you'll have Cardinal Dolan sitting between President Trump and uh, Joe Biden uh, in what is always one of the more awkward evenings I think in Catholic <laughs> American political life. Yeah. If we if we have large gatherings like that in October, exactly. It's a big if. Yeah. I'm wondering. I I have to imagine there's going to be some like serious permanent effects from this pandemic i mean whether that's fewer schools or parishes or you might see more clothes i'm wondering if you could put on like your future predictor hat like how do you see the u.s emerging from this changed in what ways oh gosh i hate playing the pundit role zach uh (laughs) (laughs) but you know uh sure i'll play along uh i think um look you're going to have, I think it's pretty obvious, just certain some Catholics that just don't return to Mass at all, uh, that were already kind of uh, fringe, if you will, in their uh, participation. Uh, but I, I, I do think uh, the creativity that we're seeing at least has created the potential for a new dynamism uh, in parish life. Uh, and the parishes that have done that well, I think, are going to be well-positioned to, to thrive, whether that's, you know, virtual community groups that have been set up sort of spontaneously through this, whether that's, you know, uh, pastors uh, sort of doing just town halls. You know, I, I think parishioners will remember, you know, who was there for them uh, in this pandemic and, and perhaps who failed them. Uh, so I think that's one thing in terms of the institutional church life. But I mean, if you look at sort of the border or in prisons and where so many marginalized communities are, it's so often the church that's on the front lines tending to those populations, as they were before this pandemic, of course. 
Uh, and their resources are, of course, going to be even more depleted and strained than ever before. But I think their work is going to be uh, more than uh, ever essential. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to see perhaps a greater appreciation for the work that, say, Catholic Charities and not Catholic Charities, Inc., but Catholic Charities uh, around the country are doing uh, for those on the margins because they're motivated by their faith. And I, I hope that's something that we can come along and, and help cheerlead. Yeah. I'm wondering what what stories um, are you are you paying attention to that aren't related to the coronavirus or were there things you were working on back back in March that got put on hold or trends that you think people might be missing because this is just such an all consuming <laughs> new reality? Not that yeah, we're looking I, to I mean, scoop you or anything. It just <laughs> <laughs> well, to to be honest, I'm. I really have grown weary of writing about the church and the coronavirus, even because you know we're, we're living it, and I'm I'm kind of looking for distractions. Uh, look, I mean, frankly, the work of uh, you know holding bishops accountability uh, accountable for uh, sex abuse is something that I've done. You know, a lot of my journalism and my reporting on in the past few years. Uh, I've got some long-term reporting on that that I'm continuing to do. Uh, that I think remains essential. Uh, you know, th- there's, of course, you know, Vatican stories that I'm keeping my eye on, you know, what the re- reform of the Roman, you know, Curia Constitution will look like, those sort of things that I'm just sort of interested in monitoring from afar, U.S. bishops' appointments, how that all plays out in the time of uh, coronavirus and recovery. Uh, I've got, um, you know, some work I'm doing with uh Sister uh, Norma Pimentel on the U.S. border doing one of those People of God series books on uh, on her. And I, I think that's I, I call that sort of my dessert project. That's what I turn to when I need hope. So, <laughs> yeah, the, I, the sex piece crisis is interesting because it it definitely felt unfinished before the work of reform before the coronavirus hit. But then that that definitely got moved to the back burner, I think. I, I think that's something that, you know, so many of us are just waiting to sort of see. I mean, most notably the report on uh, former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, uh, which sort of uh, reopened so many uh, wounds regarding the clergy abuse scandals. Uh, that report was sort of promised right after Christmas, and then we thought maybe right before Easter. Uh, but I do think that that report will be uh, something that kind of refocuses attention on uh clergy abuse and bishop accountability and and the the ongoing reforms that are needed there. Yeah. Hearing you just like talk about <laughs> those two huge crises, you know, um as as national correspondent, you have to you have to cover both of those plus everything else that's happening in the US church. Um how do you how do you do that? How do you choose what to pay attention to? Um and how do you how do you see your role as a Catholic journalist? Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough beat to cover the whole US church. Uh one of the things that I'm constantly aware of is that so much of my focus tends to be institutional. Uh, you know, what's happening, you know, at the top and with the hierarchy and how they interact with, you know, the power players in Washington, uh, that I have to remind myself that the church, uh, that, you know, that is the church, but the church is so much more than that. And really the church is at its best when, uh, you're focusing on sort of the marginalized, uh, voices and communities don't make headlines, but really often should. And those are the stories that actually uh, show what's best about the church. Does that ever grate on you, paying attention to the institutional church so much? Because I feel like I had a at least simpler relationship with 
the Catholic Church before I knew the names of so many bishops. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does grate on me. I, I think, um, you know, my least favorite week of the year is the the week the U.S. bishops meet in November uh, for their annual uh, assembly, because it's just, you know, that is so like all encompassing of, of sort of institutional church. Uh, and that's the only sort of spotlight you see for a week. And it's just an exhausting week uh, mentally and emotionally. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I try to sort of, you know, uh, for every few stories that where I'm sort of having to report on abuse failings or something like that, uh, I try to very quickly pivot to a story of hope just uh, because one, it matters, uh, and two, it keeps me sane. Yeah. Speaking of, <laughs> any any hope you, do you have any hope for us right now? <laughs> do I have any hope? Uh, us as the human race? Or, or, what are some bright spots you're seeing in the Catholic Church right now? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, uh, I'm, Oh, I'm too good at looking at at uh, the um, sort of the the shadows. Uh, just yesterday, you know, I think um, it was over a hundred Catholic organizations. I think it was 130 came together. They sent a letter to Congress, one uh, to lobby for more aid for uh, communities of color that have been disproportionately hit by the pandemic. But one of the nice things about the letter that I thought is it drew from uh, Laudato C. And it says, when we come uh, out of this uh, and we talk about long-term recovery and rebuilding, uh, we really need to have a national conversation about, you know, not just providing jobs to people, but jobs that uh, are sustainable and promote, uh, you know, more, you know, efficient energy uses and uh, provide greater access to health care. Uh, and if the church can play a role in that sort of conversation and at least steering the conversation in that direction, uh, that will make me very hopeful uh, and excited uh, rather than uh, conversations of sort of uh, just despair that uh, I spend most of my time uh, reporting on. Mm. This uh, gets to a question that I know that we've talked about internally, at least. How do you see yourself as someone who covers a church that you're also a member of, that you belong to? Yeah, I... um well, I would say I'm a journalist first uh, and a Catholic second, uh, and I know that will make some people cringe. Uh, but you know, my job is really to you know report uh, and sort of hold the church accountable, and you know help bring about a more transparent era in the church. And I think in doing that, that that helps contribute to a faith that I can more easily believe in and live out. If I think there's authenticity in what the major players and people are, are doing. Uh, I think that's certainly something that Pope Francis uh, always tries to, when he talks to journalists about their vocations as journalists, I think he really sees us as agents in that task. Uh, and I, I would hope that's what I'm contributing to both as a journalist and as a Catholic. On the more positive side, though, do you think that, like, there's obvious, there, the obvious tension between being a journalist and being a Catholic. And so I think some people would see like not wanting to be too hard on your church or whatever. But like, I also think there's an aspect of, you know, this church, right? Like, and so you're able to lend at least an, uh, an eye and an ear that, that can see the details. Right. And I think that makes you and all of us a better journalist, not to say that not Catholic journalists can't contribute anything. Cause God knows where we'd be as a church without the reporting of secular journalist. Yeah. 
Yeah, I again, not to dwell so much on clergy abuse, but I was rereading some of the early, early coverage of it in the um, in the eight nineteen eighties, and one of the things that one of the reporters talked about uh, who was reporting on this uh, was, you know, it's okay to, you know, hit these leaders hard if you have to, if you're doing it with love, Uh, because if it's a corrective that is in the spirit uh, of, of, you know, true reform with genuine love for the institution, in the end, that will at least, uh, you know, show itself to be your, your true motivation here. One of the other, um, fallouts of this crisis is, you know, parish diocesan newspapers are are closing. Um, they were in trouble before this and with no one at mass, uh, uh, you know, it's just not viable anymore. And that, you know, traditionally was how a lot of Catholics got their news. Um, and so I don't think that's how a lot of young Catholics ever did get their news. Um, so I'm wondering how you, how you see yourself reaching that next generation of Catholics. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I'm biased, but I think it's important for Catholics to to pay attention to what's happening uh, to their church and what their leaders are doing. Um, do you have any insights into how how to best reach young people? Well, I think this is uh, where I compliment my host uh, for the work you're doing because I really do think it's uh, through innovative outreach through programs like Jesuitical. Uh, and Catholics that are just trying to commit it, that are committed to sort of exploring this, uh, you know, the digital frontier, uh, and to do so in a way that both provides content that is engaging, uh, but through a medium that folks are more inclined to use. Like that's so essential. Uh, you know, I, I think in uh, a very short time from now, all Catholic news will be online, uh, and I think we've got to help. You know. Pope Francis talks a lot about intergenerational solidarity, uh, and I think we should look at more deeply about what that means for media and how do we reach Catholics uh, that are only inclined to a certain medium and, and, and how they might be accompanied, if you will, to embrace uh, new forms of Catholic media. Uh, but I, I think this is an area where you guys are certainly leading the way, so uh, I promise kudos to I you wasn't. on that. <laughs> I wasn't fishing for a compliment, but thank you. No, it's merited. So. <laughs> I feel like we're... we're we're in good hands. We're we're figuring it out together. Chris, I want to thank you a lot for your reporting, your work as uh as a journalist and as a colleague in the Catholic press. Um we do have one final question for you and I think you know it's coming. I do. I I you know this afternoon I thought about this because I knew it was coming and I still hadn't settled on an answer, but here we go. Good. We like it to be spontaneous. <laughs> yeah. So if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, Fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why? Okay, so I, I think I'm going to go with uh, Stephen Sondheim, uh, the great Broadway lyricist and composer uh, who just turned 90. So, uh, you know, he may be meeting his maker uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, and for Sondheim, uh, I think what he's able to do through his songwriting uh, is sort of explore the real sort of complexities of human nature and our, our frailties and our aspirations and our fears and to sort of hold that all together uh, in a way that uh, is honest, but you know never turns to despair. Uh, and the way he explores that is something that I just continually return to uh, and it never bores me. Uh, and I uh, so appreciate uh, 
sort of the way he helps me sort of uh, explore things through music. Uh, so St. Stephen Sondheim. Pray yeah, for us. Oh, if, okay, what's well, like... Could, Go ahead. If you could recommend like one song, that yeah, that was my question. Demonstrates too. his his holiness. What would you tell people to listen to? Uh, so, okay, Ugh. probably uh, the um, the Act One finale of his musical Sunday in the Park with George, which I think is his best musical, uh, and the song is just uh, entitled Sunday. It's all about the act of creation uh, and imperfections being made uh, perfect. So uh, now that I think about it, I think it actually is very fitting for his case for canonization. <laughs> well, All you right. have been in my prayers because I know that Broadway being closed right now has been really tough on you. I know my own, the, my credit card statement is just a series of tickets being refunded. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good at least. Oh yeah. man. Chris, where can people follow your work? So uh, I uh, am reporting most days uh, at cruxnow.com. And of course, uh, I'm on Twitter begrudgingly uh, at CWWhite212. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Thank you, my friends. I hope to see you in person soon. Yes. Amen. (laughs) Bye, Chris. Bye, guys. This episode is brought to you by Mustard Seed Communities, providing a loving home to abandoned children with disabilities in Jamaica and around the world. Your support to Mustard Seed provides food, medicine, therapy, and lifelong loving care for the most vulnerable. Please make a donation today at mustardseed.com. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to give a huge thank you to our new supporters on Patreon, Sarah Mateus, Marianne Armstrong, Laura Fu and Beth Mayer. Thank you so much for supporting Jesuitical. We couldn't do the work without the support of our Patreon members. Yeah. And one of the things that's become clear during this pandemic and is that this Jesuitical podcast community has stayed plugged in. You guys have kept listening. You've kept contributing to our Twitter and our Facebook group. You've kept supporting the show on Patreon and other ways. Um, and you've kept listening. Uh, so just a thank you to everyone who is a part of this community. It's it's meant a lot to both Ashley and I, but also the rest of the people that listen to this podcast and find a home here. So thank you. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? So I've got a desolation this week. So we've got uh, an episode coming out uh, where we talk about monks and Thomas Merton, and you should look for that in your feed. But one of the things that brought up uh, as we were preparing for it was uh, we were reading this essay from from Merton on silence and solitude and the importance of examining yourself and just being still with yourself. And so I felt that invitation pretty strongly is because, you know, during this time of staying at home and quarantine, there's there are plenty of invitations to 
be silent and be still and be with your own thoughts. And I have definitely found myself trying to fill that with any noise I can, right? So I'm listening to podcasts as I fall asleep. I, I, I try to find a book to read. I try to find another show to watch. I try to find another person to call. And, you know, I thought, okay, I need to need to stop doing that. And also it's May, so I should probably, I'm just going to go out in this new garden I have and, and try and pray a rosary. And I, I made it two decades in before I was like, I let myself be convinced that I needed to go check on whatever work notifications were coming in. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a desolation in that. I know that I'm still ignoring an invitation to be still and look in and all of these things, but the good news is there's plenty of time to try and rectify that. <laughs> or at least that's what I'm telling myself. Uh, so uh, that's what I'm going to be working on yeah, this week. And you at least have one person in your company of... <laughs> Oh, avoiding yeah. this island at all costs. Oh, nice. Well, it turns out that we're all yeah. just like working and binging more. So I think. I know. Yeah. Uh, what do you got, Ashley? I have a consolation, um, which starts out with pretty sad. Uh, but last week, my uh, 93-year-old grandfather um, had a fall in the middle of the night. Um, and... Uh, my dad found him in the morning. Um, we had to call an ambulance. The ambulance came to pick him up and take him to the hospital. Um, but in the process of all that, we, you know, my mom, my dad, and I, you know, went outside to the street as they were as they were putting him in the ambulance. And five of my neighbors just like happened to be there. Like two of them were walking their dogs. Some were on their porch. Another like heard the ambulance and just came outside. And we we just had this like moment. Where we're like you know, my family, we're all like still in our pajamas. Um, and we had our neighbors there, um, just, you know, being, you know, so literally, you know, living out the command to love your neighbors. They were, you know, one of them had friends who were doctors at the hospital and was like, Oh, I'll call them to make sure they can check on your grandpa because we're not allowed to visit him there. Um, another one had just had a daughter who got out of the hospital and she was trying to, you know, comfort my parents and I by, you know, saying, you know, he's going to be in such good hands. Like they're the best, the best doctors, the best nurses. They're, they're going to love your grandpa. He's going to love them. And it was just like so nice in this time when we've, we've all been disconnected literally from our neighbors, um, to have this just like, kind of spontaneous con congregation um in this really like scary time where where we were getting getting this neighborly love and support from from the people around us um and and thankfully you know my my grandpa actually just I <laughs> heard downstairs he just got home from the hospital um he did break a femur but he is he is the strongest 93 year old you will ever meet so he is he's already been getting back on his feet and we're we're trying to do PT here um but yeah it was just it was in that moment uh it was it was really what we needed uh was was the love and support of our neighbors to surround us uh and and we got that and so very very grateful <laughs> mm, i will keep your grandpa in my yeah. prayers that's really hard but that's so nice i mean yeah it was it was really beautiful yeah to feel connected to neighbors right now and especially mm -hmm. in that way is really beautiful yeah all right take us out of here ashley all right Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. 
please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to You for Sunny. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.